Section 6 of The Life of Charlemagne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Charlemagne by Notger the Stammerer. Translated by Arthur James Grant. Section 6. Book 2. Part 2. And here I must repeat that the most illustrious Charles had men of the greatest cleverness in all offices. When the morning lauds had been celebrated before the emperor on the octave of the Epiphany, the Greeks proceeded privately to sing to God in their own language psalms with the same melody and the same subject matter as Veterem Hominem, and the following words in our missal. Thereupon the emperor ordered one of his chaplains, who understood the Greek tongue, to adopt that psalm in Latin to the same melody, and to take special care that a separate syllable corresponded to every separate note, so that the Latin and Greek should resemble one another, as far as the nature of the two languages allowed. So it came to pass that all of them have been written in the same rhythm, and in one of them, conteruit has been substituted for contrivit. These same Greek envoys brought with them every kind of organ, as well as other instruments of various kinds. All of these were covertly inspected by the workmen of the most wise Charles, and then exactly reproduced. The chief of these was that musician's organ wherein the great chests were made of brass, and bellows of oxhide blew through pipes of brass, and the bass was like the roaring of the thunder, and in sweetness it equaled the tinkling of lyre or cymbal. But I must not here and now speak of where it was set up, and how long it lasted, and how it perished at the same time as other losses fell upon the state. About the same time also envoys of the Persians were sent to him. They knew not where Frankland lay but because of the fame of Rome, over which they knew that Charles had rule, they thought it a great thing when they were able to reach the coast of Italy. They explained the reason of their journey to the bishops of Campania and Tuscany, of Emilia and Liguria, of Burgundy and Gaul, and to the abbots and counts of those regions. But by all they were either deceitfully handled, or else actually driven off so that a whole year had gone round before, weary and footsore with their long journey, they reached Aix at last, and saw Charles, the most renowned of kings by reason of his virtues. They arrived in the last week of Lent, and on their arrival being made known to the emperor, he postponed their presentation until Easter Eve. Then, when that incomparable monarch was dressed with incomparable magnificence for the chief of festivals, he ordered the introduction of the envoys of that race that had once held the whole world in awe. But they were so terrified at the sight of the most magnificent Charles that one might think they had never seen king or emperor before. He received them, however, most kindly, and granted them this privilege that they might go wherever they had a mind to, even as one of his own children, and examine everything, and ask what questions and make what inquiries they chose. 
They jumped with joy at this favor, and valued the privilege of clinging close to Charles, of gazing upon him, of admiring him more than all the wealth of the East. They went up into the ambulatory that runs round the nave of the cathedral and looked down upon the clergy and the nobles. Then they returned to the emperor, and, by reason of the greatness of their joy, they could not refrain from laughing aloud. And they clapped their hands and said, We have seen only men of clay before. Here are men of gold. Then they went to the nobles, one by one, and gazed with wonder upon arms and clothes that were strange to them, and then came back to the emperor, whom they regarded with wonder still greater. They passed that night and the next Sunday continuously in church, and, upon the most holy day itself, they were invited by the most munificent Charles to a splendid banquet, along with the nobles of Frankland and Europe. There they were so struck with amazement at the strangeness of everything that they had hardly eaten anything at the end of the banquet. But when the morn leaving Tithonus' bed illumined all the land with Phoebus' torch, then Charles, who would never endure idleness and sloth, went out to the woods to hunt the bison and the eurocs, and made preparations to take the Persian envoys with him. But when they saw the immense animals, they were stricken with a mighty fear, and turned and fled. But the undaunted hero, Charles, riding on a high-mettled charger, drew near to one of these animals, and, drawing his sword, tried to cut through its neck. But he missed his aim, and the monstrous beast ripped the boot and leg thongs of the emperor, and, slightly wounding his calf with the tip of its horn, made him limp slightly. After that, furious at the failure of its stroke, it fled to the shelter of a valley which was thickly covered with stones and trees. Nearly all the servants wanted to take off their own hose to give to Charles, but he forbade it, saying, I mean to go in this fashion to Hildegard. Then Isambard, the son of Warren, the same Warren that persecuted your patron saint Othmar, ran after the beast and not daring to approach him more closely, threw his lance, and pierced him to the heart between the shoulder and the windpipe, and brought the beast yet warm to the emperor. He seemed to pay no attention to the incident, but gave the carcass to his companions and went home. But then he called the queen, and showed her how his leg coverings were torn, and said, What does the man deserve who freed me from the enemy that did this to me? She made answer, He deserves the highest boon. Then the emperor told the whole story, and produced the enormous horns of the beast in witness of his truth, so that the empress sighed and wept and beat her breast. But when she heard that it was Isambard who had saved him from this terrible enemy, Isambard, who was in ill favor with the emperor and who had been deprived of all his offices, she threw herself at his feet and induced him to restore all that had been taken from him, and a largesse was given to him besides. These same Persian envoys brought the emperor an elephant, monkeys, balsam, nard, unguents of various kinds, spices, scents, and many kinds of drugs, in such profusion that it seemed as if the east had been left bare that the west might be filled. They came by and by to stand on very familiar terms with the emperor, and one day, 
When they were in especially merry mood and a little heated with strong beer, they spoke in jest as follows. Sir Emperor, your power is indeed great, but much less than the report of it which is spread through all the kingdoms of the East. When he heard this, he concealed his deep displeasure and asked jestingly of them, Why do you say that, my children? How did that idea get into your heads? Then they went back to the beginning and told him everything that had happened to them in the lands beyond the sea, and they said, We Persians and the Medes, Armenians, Indians, Parthians, Elamites, and all the inhabitants of the East fear you much more than our own ruler Harun. And the Macedonians and all the Greeks, how shall we express it, they are beginning to fear your overwhelming greatness more than the waves of the Ionian Sea. And the inhabitants of all the islands through which we passed were as ready to obey you and as much devoted to your service as if they had been reared in your palace and loaded with your favors. But the nobles of your own kingdom, it seems to us, care very little about you except in your presence. For when we came as strangers to them and begged them to show us some kindness for the love of you to whom we desired to make our way, they gave no heed to us and sent us away empty-handed. Then the emperor deposed all counts and abbots through whose territories those envoys had come from all the offices that they held, and fined the bishops in a huge sum of money. Then he ordered the envoys to be taken back to their own country with all care and honor. There came to him also envoys from the king of the Africans, bringing a Marmorian lion and a Numidian bear, with Spanish iron and Tyrian purple and other noteworthy products of those regions. The most munificent Charles knew that the king and all the inhabitants of Africa were oppressed by constant poverty, and so not only on this occasion but all through his life he made them presents of the wealth of europe corn and wine and oil and gave them liberal support and thus he kept them constantly loyal and obedient to himself and received from them a considerable tribute soon after the unwearied emperor sent to the emperor of the persians horses and mules from Spain, Frisian robes, white, grey, red, and blue, which in Persia, he was told, were rarely seen and highly prized. Dogs, too, he sent him, of remarkable swiftness and fierceness, such as the king of Persia had desired for the hunting and catching of lions and tigers. The king of Persia cast a careless eye over the other presents, but asked the envoys what wild beasts or animals these dogs were accustomed to fight with. He was told that they would pull down quickly anything they were set on to. Well, he said, experience will test that. Next day the shepherds were heard crying loudly as they fled from a lion. When the noise came to the palace of the king, he said to the envoys, Now, my friends of Franklin, mount your horses and follow me. Then they eagerly followed after the king, as though they had never known toil or weariness. When they came in sight of the lion, though he was yet at a distance, the satrap of the satraps said to them, Now set your dogs on to the lion. They obeyed and eagerly galloped forward. The German dogs caught the Persian lion, and the envoys slew him with swords of northern metal, which had already been tempered in the blood of the Saxons.
At this sight, Haroun, the bravest inheritor of that name, understood the superior might of Charles from very small indications, and thus broke out in his praise. Now I know that what I heard of my brother Charles is true, how that by the frequent practice of hunting and by the unwearied training of his body and mind he has acquired the habit of subduing all that is beneath the heavens. How can I make worthy recompense for the honors which he has bestowed upon me? If I give him the land which was promised to Abraham and shown to Joshua, it is so far away that he could not defend it from the barbarians. Or if, like the high-souled king that he is, he tried to defend it, I fear that the provinces which lie upon the frontiers of the Frankish kingdom would revolt from his empire. But in this way I will try to show my gratitude for his generosity. I will give that land into his power, and I will rule over it as his representative. Whenever he likes, or whenever there is a good opportunity, he shall send me envoys, and he will find me a faithful manager of the revenue of that province. Thus was brought to pass what the poet spoke of as an impossibility. The Parthians' eyes the Arar stream shall greet, and Tigris' waves shall lave the Germans' feet. For through the energy of the most vigorous Charles it was found not merely possible but quite easy for his envoys to go and return and the messengers of Harun, whether young or old, passed easily from Parthia into Germany, and returned from Germany to Parthia. And the poet's words are true, whatever interpretation the grammarians put on the river Arar, whether they think it an affluent of the Rhone or the Rhine, for they have fallen into confusion on this point through their ignorance of the locality. I could call on Germany to bear witness to my words, for in the time of your glorious father Louis, the land was compelled to pay a penny for every acre of land held under the law toward the redemption of Christian captives in the Holy Land, and they made their wretched appeal in the name of the dominion anciently held over that land by your great-grandfather Charles and your grandfather Louis. Now, as the occasion has arisen to make honorable mention of your never-sufficiently praised father, I should like to recall some prophetic words which the most wise Charles is known to have uttered about him. When he was six years old, and had been most carefully reared in the house of his father, he was thought, and justly, to be wiser than men sixty years of age. His father, then, hardly thinking it possible that he could bring him to see his grandfather, nevertheless took him from his mother who had reared him with the most tender care, and began to instruct him how to conduct himself with propriety and modesty in the presence of the emperor, and how, if he were asked a question, he was to make answer, and show in all things deference to his father. Thereafter he took him to the palace, and on the first or second day the emperor noted him with interest, standing among the rest of the courtiers. "'Who is that little fellow?' he said to his son." and he had for answer, He is mine, sir, and yours if you deign to have him. So he said, Give him to me. And when that was done, he took the little fellow and kissed him, and sent him back to the place where he had formerly stood. But now he knew his own rank, 
and thought it shame to stand lower than any one who was lower in rank than the emperor so with perfect composure of mind and body he took his place on terms of equality with his father the most prophetic charles noticed this and calling his son louis told him to find out the name of the boy and why he acted in this way and what it was that made him bold enough to claim equality with his father the answer that louis got was founded on good reason when i was your vassal he said i stood behind you and among soldiers of my own rank as i was bound to do but now i am your ally and comrade in arms and so i rightly claim equality with you when louis reported this to the emperor the latter gave utterance to words something like these if that little fellow lives he will be something great i have borrowed these words from the life of st ambrose because the actual words that charles used cannot be translated directly into latin and it seems fair to apply the prophecy which was made of st ambrose to louis for louis closely resembled the saint except in such points as are necessary to an earthly commonwealth as for instance marriage and the use of arms and in the power of his kingdom and his zeal for religion louis was if i may say so superior to st ambrose he was a catholic in faith devoted to the worship of god and the unwearied ally protector and defender of the servants of christ here is an instance of this when our faithful abbot hartmut who is now your hermit reported to him that the little endowment of st gall which was due not to royal munificence but to the petty offerings of private people was not defended by any special charter such as other monasteries have nor even by the laws that are common to all people and so was unable to procure any defender or advocate king louis himself resisted all our opponents and was not ashamed to proclaim himself the champion of our weakness in the presence of all his nobles at the same time too he wrote a letter to your genius directing that we should have license to make petition after taking a special vote for whatever we would through your authority but alas what a stupid creature i am i have been probably drawn aside by my personal gratitude for the special kindness he showed us away from his general and indescribable goodness and greatness and nobleness End of section 6